Hi, my name is Dan Ariely, and welcome to Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast about science. Every week, I will talk to one researcher about one project who'll have a chat about what they found and what it means for our lives. Dan's guest this week is Mike Norton, associate professor at Harvard Business School. They discuss the IKEA effect, why we overvalue what we make. This is a chapter from Dan's latest book, The Upside of Irrationality. Mike Norton, how are you? Good, how are you? <laughs> Good. So one of the things we worked on together was this chapter on the IKEA effect. From your perspective, what's, what's the main lesson from there? One of the things I think that we realized while we were doing it is that people make a mistake in, in thinking about whether they should make things themselves and that in some sense we leave some happiness and some meaning on the table all the time. So we predict that we hate making things and we all have stories about we tried to put together a toy for Christmas and it was terrible to put together and we remember these things that are difficult to do and so we buy things that are pre-assembled for us all the time. And what we tried to show in these experiments is that if you ask people would they like to build things themselves, they usually say no. But if we actually ask them to build them themselves, they really love it. They get a lot of meaning out of it. They get a lot of joy out of it. And they really, in some sense, are making a prediction error that robs them of meaningful experiences. Yeah. And, but, but there's another uh, mistake, which is once they make it, they fall in love with it. And they think that, it's, that other people fall in love with it as well. Right? So they're blinded to the uniqueness of their affection to what they've created. That's right. That's right. And, and where do you think we make most of these mistakes? In what kind of areas of life? We are time-constrained, so you can think about when should you put things together yourself and, and when should you not. But, you know, it's, it's a thing where we very rarely make anything ourselves anymore, yeah. in some sense. Everything we get is already done for us. And um, there's very easy ways to build in a little bit of doing things yourself. One of the biggest places now, of course, is customization on websites. Yeah. where you're now allowed in a very easy way by dragging a mouse to be creative, make it your shoe, uh, make it your product. And that is a way in which people can build in a little bit of themselves into products now. Maybe cooking is another one of those that you can actually quite easily... Not for me. Not for you. <laughs> but yeah, that's right. Relatively, relatively speaking. Yeah. And, but that also raises the issue of when you make things yourself, is it that you customize them to your preferences and that's why you like them? Or can you even make a very routine thing and still come to love it. And one of the things we try to show in our experiments is that even if you can't express yourself at all, you're building a five-piece Lego set, still the act of doing that, you really think the thing is great. You really fall in love. Right. But, but so customization is good. It's not that customization is not good. Fitting That's your right. preference is good. But on top of that, even just a simple act. And That's the right. amazing thing is you don't need that much effort, right? Even a small amount of effort is, is enough. That's right. Right. What, what is the minimum, the centrally minimum amount of effort for the rest of our world? That's right. And in a little bit, it's almost like you're accidentally committing yourself to have sunk costs. Mm -hmm. And usually we see that as a mistake. So what, what do you mean by that? So you, sunk costs often in the, in the business domain is you start a project, you put a lot of money into it, it doesn't go well. And if you had known that up front, you would have killed the project altogether. But now that you've already started, you've got some costs and you put another million yeah, and another so million into it. Throwing, good, uh, throwing bad money after good. That's right. And, and it's a mistake usually is, is how we think about it. But in some ways, when you build products yourself, you invest yourself in it. You're kind of stuck now in the process. 
maybe you wouldn't have chosen to do that before if you had full information, but now that you're in it, you can actually get meaning out of it. Uh-huh. So sunk, sunk cost is a way to actually like what we do more. So That's one right. of the things that the sunk cost literature kind of doesn't look at is it just looks at the mistakes of putting more money. It doesn't look at the actual value that we put That's right. on something. So you may, for example, stay in relationships because of sunk costs, mm-hmm. and it's not clear that that's good or bad for you, right? It could be good, it could be bad. It, it might be that you actually love the person, that once, once they got you to put more sun cost into it, right. uh, the way you view the person has changed, you like them more and you want to stay with them longer, That's right. Uh, even if it's just due to sun right. cost. Or when you have a child and you spend years cleaning up their poop. Hey. You have <laughs> enormous sun cost, yeah. but it makes you love them more, right? And you get a yeah. meaning out of that that you wouldn't get. Yeah, kids, uh, kids I think, are the ultimate example of, uh, of, of attachment. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I do this sometimes experiment in class. Not really, but as hypothetically, I, I asked the students, I said, imagine um, that somebody asked you to buy your kid. Not, not to buy your kid like this, but imagine somebody said, how much would you sell all your memories and affection and so on of, of, of your kid? And people say, you know, not for right. all the pearls in China, not, lots and lots of money. And then I said, imagine that you uh, came to a, to a playground and you met a kid. And you play with them for a few hours and you learn everything there is to know about them. And you like them a lot. And in fact, they were just like your, your kid, but you didn't have your kid, right? It was the same thing. And when you said goodbye, their parents said, uh, you know, by the way, they're for sale. <laughs> and they were just like your kids. How much would you buy them? Right. And people, people say very, very little. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, on, you know, even on good days with your kids, yeah. people say very little. And, and this is kind of the magic of, of attachment, and I kind of like it because I think it portrays something really interesting about irrationality. On one hand, it's an irrational attachment, right? We don't predict it correctly. We fall in love after we have sunk cost. Mm-hmm. We think that other people would fall in love with it as well. Like when I see my kids, I can't imagine everybody's not just spending all their time looking at them. That's Clearly, right. they're so <laughs> cute and wonderful. That's right. But in the same way that, that it's... Uh, Irrational, it's also wonderful, yeah. right? It's, it's our incredible ability to start caring. Imagine how the world would look like without us. Nothing you would do would get you excited or yeah. motivated or It gives emotion. us perseverance too in our work, right? So, so I start a paper and it's a lot of work. And part of the reason that I can keep working on it is because I assume that everyone else will love it as much as I do. <laughs> That's right. And then when I get reviews and they say it stinks, I'm very upset because part of the th- motivation and drive to Where they don't it, see it, how come they don't see this beautiful paper as it is? Exactly. And presenting it to other people and so on. How excitement. Um, have you ever presented your work to your parents, by the way? I have. And? They were confused. <laughs> <laughs> and that might have been my fault, though. <laughs> But, but that's, that's true for lots of stuff, right? That we just start to uh, invest something, some, some effort into something. And the question is, what will get us to continue investing lots of time and energy? Mm-hmm. The, the workplace, in fact, is quite amazing. Right? I mean, often, often we think about the, the world of work as kind of people working like rats in a cage, just doing the minimiz- minimizing effort. Right. But the reality is that we find so much meaning in what we do. Even you meet people that you don't understand how they find meaning. They can find exactly. meaning and it could be just because they invest effort and thought and attention into it. They're capable of doing meaning. Imagine we couldn't do it. How miserable would people be right. with their work? And we teach in, in, you know, when we teach people how to be a marketing manager, we say... And, and you, of course, teach at where? The Harvard Business the School. The Harvard <laughs> Business School. Can you say it with a Boston accent? I don't know if I can anymore. Try. Harvard. Harvard. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> 
But we teach people. So, for example, we say when you set up your distribution channel, so you're you have to sell your product to a middleman who then sells it to a vendor, right? We say you should do everything based on price and efficiency. But it turns out that people like some vendors more than other vendors, mm. and they pay them more than they need to than another vendor who's going to give them a better deal. Yeah. But it's because they like them, yeah. right? So they get a lot of joy and happiness out of this guy. They change Christmas cards every year, things like that. And it's irrational, clearly, from an economic standpoint or a rational standpoint. Yeah. They're probably happier. Mm -hmm. And it's all about, you know, we had a relationship, we got into it, and now we're going to stay, you know? Yeah. And, and, and then you get people who sell all kind of really uh, ridiculous, frivolous products. You could say, why would anybody want that? But the people who are selling it seem to really, really love and care about it. You know, you yeah. see startups. Startups are really amazing. Right? You, you well, restaurants especially are fascinating. Restaurants are amazing. Fascinating. You actually did some work on restaurants. Did I? Didn't you do this thing on this restaurant in Spain? Oh, El Bulli, yeah. El Bulli. That's a different one, then, that, because that's actually an amazing restaurant. And it, it does work well. Yeah, but people say, you know, there's been nine pizza places on that corner in the last nine years, but my pizza recipe is actually <laughs> the best be, one. This is the and one. people will line up on that. And yeah. they forget that the reason it's because it's on a highway. <laughs> they feel that they've invested themselves in this recipe, and yeah, the world will know. The world yeah. will come, you know. Uh, but could it be also that uh, restaurants are particularly prone to this because there's so much creation involved? So if you say, is it just any store that you would open, any retail business that people get so attached to? There's something specific about food because in food, you really get to express a lot of your individuality. Right. It's not like a toy store. I mean, to, even toy store you get to express or a bookstore, um, but hardware store, right? You just don't see people as excited about opening right. another hardware store, but restaurants. In restaurants, in fact, you also are very involved in remodeling the, the interior. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you open a Walgreens or a CVS, it's standard. Right? Right. So when you have a franchise, you get no say in any of this stuff. Yeah. So it's very likely that you feel way less invested in the thing than if you do everything yourself. That, that's interesting where the franchise is one of the reasons they fail less frequently is that. Yeah. That you actually minimize people's investments. You minimize the love. You minimize the idiosyncratic investments that they do. You don't allow them that's to right. have any flexibility. That's they right. enjoy it less. But maybe they don't fail as much. Well, because you've tested how it looks and how it tastes on a million people, and you don't let the <laughs> yeah. owner have their own idiosyncratic taste in the, on the menu. Yeah. Right? But at the same time, if, if it's for fun, right? If you open a restaurant for fun, you don't want a, a franchise. But yeah, I don't think most people do it right. for, just for fun. Right. In another research project, we kind of uh, examine how the IKEA effect works on just ideas. So what we basically did is we asked people in the New York Times to generate solutions to world problems, water, energy, and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, we asked them to generate, in one experiment, we asked them to generate the ideas from a list of 50 words. And because we gave them the 50 words, we knew what their solutions would be like. Mm -hmm. And then we asked them to evaluate our ideas compared to their ideas. But, you know, it was the same ideas, and it turns out they liked their ideas much more. They thought they were more useful, more important, they would invest more time, more energy, and so on. It was so extreme that even if we just had a sentence our sentence solution, but scrambled, and they had to rearrange the words. Just that by itself made mm -hmm. them value value the idea more. Mm -hmm. So, so it doesn't. It's not just about physical stuff. It's also about that's right mental things. Um, but what, again, playing that forward, it may be the case that having unscrambled it themselves, if you said, "Will you go volunteer for a water crisis next week?" They would say yes. That's right. So that, that, <laughs> right? That, we asked them that. So we yeah, asked them, "Would yeah. you? How much effort and time and so on?" And, and they did like it more. Yeah. Which which means that. 
you know, it's crazy to think that just scrambling a sentence would make them like the idea more, but on the other hand, it's much That's more right. motivating. Well, we were just talking earlier about, about graduate students, and you tell them an idea, and they say, I don't like it, and then they come back two weeks later, and they think <laughs> it's their idea, and they love it now, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, what, what would be kind of ways that you could get grad students to think an idea is theirs? Or if you think about the workplace, how could you get employees to think that an idea is theirs and therefore care more about it? That always, that always bothers me, right? You, both you and I go to companies and we try to get them yeah. to do experiments that you and I think are really great for them. And often they don't, just don't do it. Yeah. And the question is, could we, could we get them to think that their idea is theirs and therefore... This reminds me of, there's a very old paper from the 1950s on how uh, the Chinese did brainwashing uh, in World War II uh-huh. of POWs. And what they would do is they'd have American POWs, they'd have essay writing contests every week. And the prize was for the best essay. And you could write about whatever you wanted. And very occasionally they would give a prize to someone who wrote a pro-U.S. essay. But most of the time they would give prizes if you wrote a pro-communist essay. And so what happened over time is they started writing more and more pro-communist essays without uh-huh. realizing it. Yeah. Because it was important to signal at the beginning, no, it's fair, we're doing pro-U.S., pro-communist, yeah, 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 we're yeah. different... And then that's how they brainwashed them. So they started to feel like, all I'm trying to do is win the essay contest. And then they would start with pro-communist thing. This is my idea that's coming right out of me, right? Yeah. And it's so, an early demonstration of dissonance in some sense. Yeah, right? so people, people basically had an incentive to, to write the pro-communist one. And once they wrote it, they felt it actually came it. from them. Exactly. They owned it. And, they, they... and a prize is important, right? So you say, yeah. Yeah, so, so tell me, how, how is the Harvard Business School utilizing this idea in kind of brainwashing your students? <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, that's off the record. That's proprietary. <laughs> <laughs> that's the secret sauce of the institution. That's right. So, so imagine that, that we wanted, uh, we went to some company and we tried to get them to do some experiments and we wanted them to actually adopt the experiments. What, what would you do? What I often do is um, brainstorm research ideas. So I'll often describe some random project that I've done in the past. Mm-hmm. And then say, any thoughts right away? Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with anything you guys do? Are there any things that you, you think that would be related to in your, in your business? Any problems you're facing? And ideally, they'll talk for 20 minutes, mm-hmm. especially on a group call. So they'll start brainstorming among themselves yeah. and say, oh, that reminds me of that other thing that we did three years ago with HR, and we could try that now. And I'm silent uh-huh. for a very long time. And then try to put structure on it, right? So, oh, it sounded like there were three things that came out there. And you could... said them. Yes, exactly. And in yeah. fact, well, speaking of proprietary information, that's the case method at Harvard Business School. I could stand up and tell you, here's the three things you need to know about this company that we're studying. And it could or take I... 15 minutes. And it could take 15 minutes. Or, or seven. I can allow the class to figure it out themselves. Uh-huh. And then point at people and say, actually, this is what we just figured out. And you give ownership. Uh-huh. And, so and you say, Joe said this, and Mike said that, and together you exactly. figured in the class, this exactly. is it. And if you think about if you came back five years later and asked people, do you remember anything, it may be the case that doing it that way, instead of me just saying it, would actually be better for retention. Yeah, we don't Although know. Although we that. don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's right, we don't know. But, but the basic of the, so what you're saying is that the basic ingredient of the case method, the reason the students are so happy, is they have a feeling that they actually came up with it. That's right. Now, do they really come up with it, or do you orchestrate what they're actually going to come up with? Do you know at the end... Do you know in the beginning of the class what they'll end up with? Often. It, so it depends on the case. Yeah. Uh, but often. Depends on the company we're studying, but often, yes. So it's, it's really like an illusion that they come up with it themselves. 
I mean, you, you guide them to come up with what you think you should, they should come up with. I'm not sure. So if you think about talking about any, any topic that you know more about than somebody else, yeah. you, you want them to discover it in the way that you discovered it when you first learned it. Mm-hmm. It's more exciting that way. Yeah. It's more exciting for you and for them. Mm-hmm. It's not so much disingenuous as it is uh, 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 a, a way to get people <laughs> excited about things and remember things and care about them and... Uh, but it is, it is about getting them to have an endowment effect for the idea. Yeah. So to feel, to feel ownership, to feel connected, to important. care. And with companies, same with companies as we were just talking about, right? So you, you want them to feel like some, it's some of their ideas truly, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is you brought the big idea to the table, so we're now riffing off of a thing that I kind of am interested in, and then we can figure yeah. out, right? So, so you create the basic structure, and then from there on you let them right. uh, make, it, make it their own. Um, <clears throat> So, so next next time I go to uh, talk to somebody and try to get them to do some experiments, I should basically shut up. Uh, <laughs> shut up more. <laughs> Maybe start a discussion, let them, and then help them reframe the ideas in a way that I think is uh, useful for them. But it still doesn't work. It but, still doesn't work as well. Try, yeah. yeah, but but then you can think about what else you could do, right? Could you give them homework? Could you give them to invest some more energy into it? Prepare some powerpoints. Maybe that will be very exciting. Right. You know. They know how to do really beautiful PowerPoints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there areas of life that you think the kind of the IKEA effect and the not invented here effects are good? So we talked about kids. We talked about food, kind of stuff at home and motivating people to work. Any other? Yeah, you know, another study that I often talk about in this domain, and it's loosely related, but I think it is related, is the idea of uh, putting effort into your relationships. So you, you, you tend... What, what, what do you know about that? <laughs> you, you tend, but we're cutting that out. So you tend to take your relationship for granted in some sense, especially when you've been together for some time. And uh, a psychologist, Art Aaron, uh, who studied relationships for many years, has a wonderful paradigm where he has couples who've been married for a long time come in to the lab, and he makes them do exciting activities together, like uh, roll this thing across the gym together. Mm-hmm. And so they're not putting effort into their relationship, like let's talk about all of our issues, but they're putting effort into something together, and it really increases their satisfaction with each other. Mm -hmm. And one of the ideas, there's many reasons why that happens, but one of the ideas is that we're putting effort into something together, and we're doing it together, and now we value each other more. Uh And it doesn't have to be effort in terms of specifically figuring out something in our relationship, but just investing in each other in some sense so together. even even though the investment is in something external people think of it as investment in each other or in mm-hmm. the collaboration or in the effort yeah so there's some sort of misattribution of some kind that mm-hmm. happens where you should attribute it to rolling the ball but instead you say wow what a what a fun person this is that i'm with so so, so it, it's again about investment so, so let's assume we wanted to make the most out of that imagine that you wanted to create the manipulation or the event that will cause the most investment of energy and effort into your partner what would it look like? I would guess something like a, a joint task that requires each of you to put in effort uh, in order to get some outcome. Mm-hmm. Right? That you, you collaboratively are doing something together requires both of you to do something at the same time, whatever, whatever it is. Uh-huh. Those are cases where you're building toward... Th- these are old studies in, in organizational yeah. behavior, right? Superordinate goals, uh, private information. So you know some things, I know some things. We have to work together to figure it out. Yeah. Those are things I think that people um, don't do often, mm-hmm. in some sense, because we don't really think of the world that way. But I think yeah. it could be very impactful for people. Could, could it be that uh, kids actually provide opportunities for that? That there's all sorts of questions and puzzles about how to mm-hmm. deal with kids and what's the right approach and 
Uh, of course, there's a lot of uh, joint investment that they yeah. actually uh, bring people yeah. closer because of that. I wonder, it's, it's too bad that, that, you know, something like putting a diaper on a kid doesn't require two people or something. <laughs> right? I mean, it would be very inefficient, but in other words, I can't do this thing with this kid unless you're holding their hand or something. You know, yeah. So, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, because I've been traveling so much, uh, Sumi discovered that she doesn't really need me <laughs> that much at home, that I don't actually do that. She may have known before, much. too, but yeah. Uh, she, not, not as explicitly, at least, uh, as possible. Uh, so joint uh, joint task and relationship. Okay, so look, we covered we covered That's furniture. Life. We covered <laughs> furniture. We covered relationship. We covered jobs. Is there anything else there? How to convince PhD students to do work for That's you? Right. The most valuable lesson of all. Yeah, I, I think I think we covered everything. Great. So thank you. Thank you. This has been Arming the Donkeys, a weekly podcast with Duke University behavioral economist Dan Ariely. Dan's latest book is The Upside of Irrationality. Learn more at predictablyirrational.com.